Don't you just love that song? What an amazing reminder of the fact that we have Christ's strength. We don't rely on our own strength. We fall into those traps often of relying on our own strength. It's so easy to live there and to even go months and years just realizing we've been trying to go at it alone. And that might be one of the major differences between Christians uh, and unbelievers is that in everything we recognize that we live according to the strength of another, the man of God's own choosing, the, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. Thank you, uh, Patrick, for that hua. Although uh, I would opt for a hearty Marine Corps ura, a little different, but I uh, understand hua works for some of you. Uh, if you would please go with me now to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. Today we begin to make a clear transition from Abraham to Isaac. Maybe you have grown tired of hearing about Abraham. Well, uh, hopefully not, but good news. We're now moving on to a different character in this epic story. Uh, We see this in in the beginning of chapter 24 and at the end, and we'll be getting into it in a moment. But we see it at the beginning because we have Abraham's last words Uh, in our passage for today recorded for us are the last words of Father Abraham, last words he utters in the Bible. And then at the end of the passage, at the end of chapter 24, we have Isaac being portrayed as the new patriarch. He's the new head of the family. The servant comes to Isaac and addresses Isaac and tells Isaac what has happened, what has transpired. We see Isaac really rising up to that head of the family position. So this really does mark for us a clear transition or the beginning of a transition from Abraham to Isaac. And we know that in the next chapter, chapter 25, we will read of Abraham's death. So as we begin to make this transition between patriarchs, I think it is probably important for us to remind ourselves who these patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are. Uh, Who are these guys? Why do we refer to them as patriarchs? Well, they are are the fathers. And they are the fathers in at least three ways. And I just want to outline this for you so that you can kind of begin to, to, to reset, hit the reset button a little on, uh, on where we're at in Genesis. Uh, as I said before, Genesis is, uh, as it unfolds, after chapter 11, we, have, we could entitle it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because that's what Genesis is about. It is about God in his dealings with these three patriarchs, these three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what are the patriarchs? Well, three things at least that we can say is they are the fathers of the promised nation. Throughout the Bible, you will notice that there is a nation that is primary throughout Scripture called Israel. And God establishes this nation, Israel, really as a theater for the outworking of his redemptive purposes, a theater for his power. And Paul will refer to Israel as being the recipients of God's oracles, his, his covenants uh, of, of all of the prophets, that God will work in the world in the midst of and out of and through 
this nation, this one singular nation called Israel. And that, of course, takes us back to chapter 12, verse 2, where the Lord promised to Abraham, yeah, that he would make him many nations. But at the very beginning, we get this word, a great, or these words, a great nation. One nation ultimately is in view as God comes to Abraham and makes promises to him. And that nation is the nation we read about all throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. And in fact, when we have the beginnings of the Gospels, we have John the Baptist being presented as a prophet of Israel. When Jesus is born at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we have those individuals involved in that, whether it's Zechariah or Mary or it's Simeon and Anna. We have them praising the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. We have them understanding the coming of Christ very much in, uh, w- with respect to the nation of Israel. He is the Christ of Israel, the Messiah, the promised king of the Jews. As the Magi, when they come, or the wise men, when they come in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, looking for the king of the Jews. In Acts 7, 8, Jacob's sons are actually called the 12 patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are really the patriarchs of the patriarchs, if that makes sense. A patriarch really is the head or ruler of the fathers. So that's what patriarchs mean. It means, uh, patriarchs means, it means the, the rulers of the fathers. And we have the 12 sons of Jacob who are the patriarchs. Those are the rulers of all the fathers of Israel as they go out and disperse But the fathers of the fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we have the fathers of a promised nation. Secondly, they are the fathers of the promised deliverer, according to the flesh. So what we have with the patriarchs are the fathers of the Christ. Romans 9, 5, Paul says this, speaking of Israel, to them, the nation of Israel, to them belong the patriarchs, And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Where did Christ come from? Well, he is the word of God eternal, John 1, who was with God, who was God. He was sent into the world. He's the eternal word of God, the eternal light and wisdom of God who came into the world. So he is eternal, preexistent. What are the origins of Christ according to the flesh, according to his human nature? The origins go back to the fathers. The fathers of Christ are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then finally, they are the fathers in the the sense that they are the fathers of the promised peoples. In Romans 4.11, Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you're gathered here, and and you're thinking of yourself as a, a 21st century Christian, you're living in this world, in this time, you are, according to the Bible, a, a off, an offspring of Abraham. You are a child of Abraham in that you are part of the family of faith that goes back to the father of the faithful or the father of those who believe Abraham. And so in that sense, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the fathers in, in those ways. So what immediate effect should these stories of the patriarchs have on us? What is their significance? Maybe you're thinking that. We we sure have spent a lot of time in Genesis. And you would say, okay, well, we have been in the the story of the patriarchs, specifically Abraham, since September. 
So what is, I mean, I, I've, I've gotten some good nuggets. I've gleaned some good, some good principles and I understood some things about the Lord. But, but, but what exactly is the impact this should be having on me? What is the effect that studying the patriarchs should have on us? Why are we doing this? What is the significance? And I think there are at least three things. So it, you can write these down if you'd like. But I think these help us understand why we spend so much time here. First, when we look at the patriarchs, We are seeing in miniature form the workings of God with his covenant people throughout the ages. This is, in a sense, a miniature form of the Christian life. We come to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we are getting a sense for how this covenantal God relates to his covenantal people. So for us who are living the Christian life, who are going through our pilgrimage as Christians, we want to go back and understand how is it that this God relates to his people and there really is no better place to look than to go all the way back to the fathers, the patriarchs, the ones to whom God came and made a covenant. So a little miniature form of the Christian life here in these individuals. Secondly, we are growing in our appreciation of Christ by looking at his origins according to the flesh. Jesus Christ doesn't appear out of nowhere. He doesn't just appear on the scene out of the blue, out of a vacuum. We understand that Christ was God's plan from the beginning. That before the world began, isn't this amazing? Before the world began, he predestined us for adoption as sons. You can't get away from that language, by the way, when it comes to salvation and salvation history and how it is we, are, we come to be saved in Ephesians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says that we were predestined in Christ, we were chosen in Christ before the world began. And Christ is even said to have been slain, the lamb, the lamb slain, in the mind of God, the lamb slain before the world began. So God's salvation purposes go all the way back to before creation. God purposed everything in the Bible in Christ. Everything we read. And we are seeing the origins of the Christ according to the flesh, his coming. And then finally, we're being instructed on how to read our Bibles. Have you ever wondered what you should be doing when you read the Bible? I think in our culture today with so much superficial Christianity and so much kind of topical preaching and and, and a topical approach to the Bible where a man comes to the Bible like a religious guru and he comes to the Bible with his own wisdom, with his own understanding, and he picks apart the Bible and uses it for his own purposes, sometimes good, sometimes not so good, always lacking in responsibility with the text. Because what we are to do instead is let the Bible rise up in front of us and we sit underneath it. And what we need to know is how do we read our Bibles? And going back to the very beginning, to the patriarchs, we are taught how it is we are to read our Bibles because when we go to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Bible is really tied together for us into a unified whole. Maybe you've been, I've talked with some others who... who um, had a point in their life where they realized that they never really understood how to read the Bible. That uh, as they were growing up as kids, that they just had all these little random verses and these little random things about Christianity, these random doctrines, these little bits of information and data that are just 
kind of plastered up on a board, and that's Christianity, and just figure it out. And basically, it's just, it's, just, it's just watered down to this kind of pray the prayer, ask Jesus into your heart, and go and, and live for him. And that's stripped down to its very basic, and there you go with all these disparate bits of information. What we really need to understand is how do we read the Bible as one unified story? One story about God and his redemptive purposes in Christ. The Bible is one book. And when we study the patriarchs, we come to realize this. Because we see that at the end of the Bible, people will come from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship the Lord, which takes us back to the promises to Abraham. And Jesus tells us that at the end of time, we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That in the kingdom, when the kingdom comes, we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the person who just reads the Bible as these little bits of information, that doesn't make any sense. But to someone who goes back to the very beginning and reads it as one whole story, we come to understand why it is that in the kingdom we would be said to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, that goes back to the beginning of God's purposes. So this is a bit of an apologetic for why we should be reading the patriarchs here as we transition. And with these reminders in place, let's begin to make this transition as we come to chapter 24. Yes, this is the longest chapter and section in Genesis. I promise you I will not preach for two hours or anything close to that. Don't worry. But it is the longest chapter. And yes, we are going to read the entire chapter while standing. So if you would please go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We stand for a lot of things for a long time. We can certainly do this. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. Genesis 24, the longest chapter in the book. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But... If the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, 
I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew, all, drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when, he, when she was old. And to him, he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan." And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way I go, that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. 
Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman, young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahiroi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You can go ahead and be seated. These are one of, one of the great stories, I think, in the book of Genesis. We praise God for this passage of his word. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessings as we go through this passage. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We are so thankful that we get to come here and hear it read and study it because we know that the scriptures are sufficient. Father, we know as we look all around us, we see false religions, we see false forms of Christianity, we see cults, we see all kinds of strange things in the world, experiences of human beings, and we are reminded of of how our hearts are so deceptive, how easily we are led astray to every wind and wave of doctrine, and how much of a havoc 
demons play in the world, Father. Yes, we recognize that they exist and they are real and we battle against them, not against flesh and blood. And although the world may laugh at us for this, Father, we recognize that this is the reality and we see their work all around us. We're grateful, Father, that if we will anchor ourselves to your word, you will lead us and make us like flourishing trees, fruitful in their season, prospering in their way. Father, we pray that you would bless this time today, that you would use this to edify us, that you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is Isaac's Bride, and we're going to divide this into three parts. The first part is the father's wishes, then the servant's success, And then finally, the husband's delight. And you'll find these listed in your bulletin if you want to follow along with these. So the first, the father's wishes, will be verses 1 to 9. And then the servant's success will be verses 10 to 61. That's a big chunk, 51 verses. And then the husband's delight, we'll finish up with that, verses 62 to 67. And uh, perhaps you'll be happy to know that I, we won't go through and read all these chunks again as we go through. I'll, I will explain what's going on and highlight portions that we need to see clearly as we go through. So let's begin with the Father's wishes. The Father's wishes as we look at verses 1 to 9. Abraham is said here in verse 1 to be old and blessed. That is how he is described for us. God has given him the promised son. And peace in the promised land. He is old and blessed. God has done in his life what he said he was going to do when he called him out of Mesopotamia. And this description points us back to a couple places in particular. It takes us back all the way to the beginning. Chapter 12, verse 2. I will bless you. And then in chapter 15, verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace you shall be buried in a good old age. And so by describing Abraham as old and blessed, we know that the text is really getting towards describing him as coming to the end of his life, as, as dying. It will be shortly in the text, not necessarily in years, but shortly in the text when he will be, uh, we'll see him die. And at this point, Abraham recognizes that he must make preparations. He is getting older And he has a grown, unmarried son. He must faithfully prepare for the next stage of God's continuing covenantal story. And we could just pause on that for a moment and see that Abraham recognizes that God's purposes are bigger than his own life. And I think this is very instructive for us because we recognize as we go through the Christian life that as, it's, it's ubiquitous that people say everywhere you go, people say it goes by so fast. I remember when I was a kid, my grandfather, who's now passed away, would say that to me all the time. And of course, you know, when older ladies see you with your children, your little children, I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old, and they'll say, oh, it goes by fast. You better enjoy them while it lasts. And I take that to heart because I've heard it so many times that it just zips by. Our lives really are a fading flower. They are like smoke. They are like vapor. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And we, we can attest that. I mean, how often do we say, man, it's It's been 20 years. 20 years ago just seems like no time ago. Our lives are like that. But God's purposes 
transcend our little speck lives. God's purposes are greater than, are bigger than, our little blip on the map. And by making these preparations, Abraham recognizes that though his life is coming to an end, God's still on the move with his plan. So he calls his leading servant to himself, the one who is over his household. He states his wishes with regard to his son, and he has his servant swear an oath. And we get this this strange language about um, putting the hand under under the thigh. You know, what is going on there? Well, it's not entirely clear, but this practice Seems to, be, seems to be a way of connecting the oath to the procreative power of the male. And so it's in the proximity of the male's, if you will, procreative power or capability. And so uh, probably it has something to do with that. But what we see here is that it is for the purpose of swearing an oath. So what are the father's wishes? What are Abraham's wishes regarding his son. Well, I think we could summarize it this way. That woman, this land. That woman, this land. Very important. The servant is to seek a wife for Isaac from Abraham's relatives back in Mesopotamia, not from the Canaanite women. Why is that? I mean, we know that Abraham comes from uh, idol-worshiping family. And we get, we get a little bit of a description of Laban later on. Remember Laban, he is this very sketchy character. And we see that he gets all excited when he comes out and sees all the riches that Isaac uh, or that, I, that Abraham's servant has. And we find later that Laban has these household gods, whatever in the world that is. And of course, when Jacob finally leaves, this is later in Genesis, when Jacob finally leaves, Rachel is with him. And Rachel has taken her father's household gods. Like, what in the world is going on? So, so we don't get the impression that these people back in Mesopotamia are somehow true worshipers of God or, or staunch worshipers of God in a greater way maybe than the Canaanites. They too have their idolatries. But the Canaanites are under a divine curse. Genesis 9, 25, Noah speaks this curse. Cursed is Canaan, cursed be Canaan. And God told Abraham in chapter 15 that they are slated for future destruction because of their great sin. And you can go to the law, particularly in Leviticus, and you can read about all the, the, the gross wickedness of the Canaanites, the, the child sacrifice, the sexual immorality of various stripes, You can read about it there. These are a wicked people. And God comes to Abraham and he says, look, your descendants are going to be, are going to go to another land. They're going to be in bondage there, but I'm going to bring them back in the fourth generation and I'm going to use them. And if you've ever wondered about the genocide going on in the Old Testament, God uses his people Israel like he uses the floodwaters At the beginning of Genesis. So at the beginning of Genesis, God brings the flood on the earth and kills everything that breathes. And what we have with Israel is Israel is like the flood that comes into the land of Canaan. And it kills everything that breathes. It's a similar thing going on there. And so we know that the Canaanites are are building up their iniquity. As God describes it, the, the iniquity has not come to its fullest yet. But when it does come to its fullest, God is going to bring his people Israel in to destroy the Canaanites. So Abraham wants nothing to do with this future people in that way. Isaac will not take his wife from these cursed 
people who are slated for destruction. But under no circumstances whatsoever is Isaac to return to the land of Abraham's relatives, even if a woman from there will not agree to come. He cannot go back there. God had called him out of that land and promised him this land. And Abraham states this emphatically and with great confidence in the Lord. Look at verses 7 to 8. Look at what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. God's purposes left Mesopotamia. When Abraham left Mesopotamia, he went to the land that God had promised him. And God said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Which means that everything God has been doing in Abraham's life points towards his future descendants inhabiting this land. Under no circumstances is Isaac to go back there and dwell there. That would be a a massive backward step in God's program. But notice what he says in this passage we just read. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, Now, notice what this tells us. This is very subtle. In other words, what Abraham is saying is, look, God will be with you. God will be with you in going and finding a wife for my son Isaac. But even if it doesn't work out quite the way we might think it will work out, Isaac cannot go back to that land. What this tells us, I think, is that God may or may not work according to our expectations, but he will prove faithful And he must be trusted. Hear that. Abraham did not know exactly how it was going to work out. Nor did he know how it was going to work out when God came to him and said, sacrifice your son. I mean, he had to to reconcile all of this in his mind. but, But in fact, he really didn't because he just said in his mind, I trust God. I don't know how God is going to make all this work together. He's asking me to sacrifice my son. He's told me through my son, my offspring will be named. How is God going to make all this fit? And oftentimes, I think that's where we are in our lives. What is going on? What is God doing? Frequently, God does not work according to our design. We set out a course for our lives. We, we cast our 10-year plan and our 20-year plan or whatever else it is. And, and things just go differently. And we're trying to kind of piece it all together. And what we're reminded of here is that even when God, even though God does not work according to our expectations, he may not. He still is faithful and must be trusted. So the servant swears the oath and sets out on his journey. And that brings us to our second point, which is the servant's success. The servant's success. Verses 10 to 61, this massive chunk, gives us an exciting illustration of God's loving sovereignty over life. A few years ago, it's probably been about eight years or so ago now, there was, uh, for me, an intense time of anxiety for various reasons. It was just a really, really heavy, heavy time for me personally. 
And I remember uh, through this season really just crying out to God for his help, to send me help and to show me and lift me up. It was a very difficult time. And one of the things that God sent me in, in, in a really providential way was a book by John MacArthur entitled Anxious for Nothing. And if you, if you struggle with anxiety, and, and it may just be the way that book spoke to me at that moment, you may read it and not think it's as, as, as wonderful as I do. But, but that is an incredibly rich book to get if you're struggling with anxiety. You can go to all kinds of places for that sort of thing. But this little book is so biblical, as you would expect from John MacArthur. It's so biblical and so clear and so edifying if anxiety is something that you struggle with. But it's called Anxious for Nothing. And there's a line in that book that I just underlined with many, many, many times. And I started, you know, three, four, five, six stars. And it kept coming up over and over and over again. And basically what he said was, entrust yourself into the sovereign hands of your loving and omnipotent Father. Entrust yourself into the sovereign hands of your loving and omnipotent Father. And that has been a line that I have repeated to myself so many times. Father, I entrust myself into your sovereign and loving hands. He's faithful. That's who he is. And when we come to this passage, we are seeing that providence, that care, that loving sovereignty played out. One of the best illustrations, I think, that we get in the Bible of God's providential workings over life. So there's a lot of material here. And the challenge is trying to figure out, okay, how do, we, how do you teach this large chunk of text, 50 verses? But what I want to do is I want to consider this story in six frames. Six frames uh, under these words in a ordered them this way and written them this way so you can remember them and kind of have them clear for you. Six frames, preparations, prayer, providence, praise, proclamation, and prosperity. That was too fast. Let me do that again. Sorry. Preparations, prayer, providence, praise, proclamation, and prosperity. It helps us to walk through this chunk of verses and understand what exactly the Lord is showing us. So let's look at each of these. First, preparations. And I could state it simply like this. The servant prepares for success. He knows the covenant-keeping God of Abraham. He has seen him care for Abraham and keep his promises. So he moves forward anticipating that God will show his character once again. So what does he do? He gathers camels loaded with gifts. He goes to the place where Abraham's relatives live. And then he stops at a place where he expects the young women to be. This is a very wise servant. He knows exactly what to do. We don't get any uh, clear indication that Abraham micromanages him, uh, that Abraham gives him all these little instructions. Make sure it's 10 camels, not eight. Make sure you do this. Make sure you go here. You'll, you'll, there's a well there. And if you go there, you, no, that's not what we get. We just get this servant doing his master's business wisely. And in verse 11, it says, And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And I just want to pause here and think about an implication for us. I think in this little set of verses with the preparations of this servant, 
We are seeing the connection between faith and works. Think about that for a moment. The connection between faith and works. This servant has the faith of his master Abraham. We see that throughout. I mean, praying and praising. This is a man who loves the Lord. This is a man who trusts in the Lord, the God of Abraham. But what we see here is that faith for him does not equal idleness. You know, one of the things that we know we ought to do as Christians is surrender to God. And that's a very important idea. We surrender ourselves. We die to ourselves. It's a way of thinking about surrender. Uh, But the whole idea of, you know, sort of let go and let God and some of these phrases, you know, these cliched phrases that get tossed around and so forth. You know, they have their, you you think the best of them and the person uh, as they're saying them. And you say, I understand what you're getting at there. You know, we have to let go and stop trying to control our lives and let God take control of our lives. We understand what these things mean. But, But if we're not careful subtly, we can become very passive Christians. We become very passive people. People who equate faith with idleness. Just sort of sitting around, waiting on God. Maybe that's you this morning. You're just sitting around, waiting on God to act, and you're fussing at God because he's not acting. And you just think, God, you haven't dropped this thing in my lap that I want you to drop in my lap. It's just laziness. It's passivity in the Christian life. And I think what we have here is we see the connection between strong faith and diligent work. That we press into God's faithfulness with faithful work. We press into it trusting that God will provide, but being wise, those who are made in God's image, as we do so. So the first we see the preparation. Second, prayer. Kind of the second frame. Let's move from that part of the story to the second frame, which is prayer. The servant recognizes that his only means of success is the Lord's provision. And let me just say this. Prayer shows dependence. That's what we have here from this servant. He does all these preparations, but when he gets to the well, he knows he's in a a very wise place. But then he just throws up his hands to God and he recognizes, Lord, unless you do something, nothing will happen. Unless you work, there is no strength, no success. He's entirely dependent on the faithful God. So he prays in verse 12, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And he puts before the Lord a sign, a sign that will require a woman of great hospitality and character. He will ask for water, but the woman who also offers to give water to the ten, will also offer to give water to the ten camels. She will be the one that God has provided. And so it's interesting here. You might think this is kind of an arbitrary thing, right? He goes down to the well and he says, I've got an idea. The one who offers me water, but then says, let me give water to your camels also. That it's just this random kind of, kind of sign that he's throwing out there. That's not the case. What we understand is that there's a particular kind of person that he needs to find. And the person who would offer to water 10 camels, this would take potentially, one commentator said it would probably take an hour and a half. If you thought about how she had to go down to the spring at the bottom of the whale, get the water, bring it up, and give it to all 10 camels until they are fully watered. This is the kind of person this particular woman is. And so it's a wise way to see who God has 
provided. And then verse 14, by this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Kindness, loyalty. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So that's the second frame. We've got preparations, and then we move to prayer. And then the third frame is providence. Providence. Even before he's done praying. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That's like Daniel. Daniel's praying to God, and as he is praying, the angel tells him that he was sent in the middle of Daniel's prayer. And this is exactly what we have here. And and we're told this is probably an angelic working behind the scenes. That's what Abraham says, that God will send his angel before you. And so what we have here is God's providential hand. Even before he's done praying, God moves. The first woman to appear is a young, beautiful virgin who approaches to draw water. When he asks her for water... She provides it quickly, it says, and then says in verse 19, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking, which would have been, as I said before, quite a task. Then the servant asks whose daughter she is and if they can stay the night. And her answer shows that she is a perfect fit with Abraham's wishes. Isn't this, this is incredibly providential. Before he's even done praying, here comes this woman. She looks like she would be a perfect fit Then there's the test, the sign, it happens. And then he asks her, but hold on a second. Who's your father? Where do you come from? Because remember, he was sent on a very specific mission to get someone from Abraham's family. And here we find that she is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor, which makes her Isaac's cousin. So clearly, God has set this up in the most perfect way. And of course, the only right response to this display of God's providence is praise. And that brings us to our fourth frame, which is praise. But before we do that, I just want to ask this question. Are these things linked in your life? Providence and praise. Think about that. Providence and praise. They ought to be, in the life of a Christian, inextricably linked together. And what I'm saying is this. If we would just simply open up our eyes and consider all the ways that God has been providential in caring for us, all the ways that he has loved us and protected us and guided us. I mean, I'm looking in so many faces this morning and in every face is a world of providence, a world of God's hand in your life. Yet we often don't praise him at all. We just keep trudging through life, focused on the things maybe that are uncomfortable. And when we should be praising, we find ourselves complaining. What in the world is this? This is because we are in Adam and it's just another way of helping us see that we need a savior, that we need Christ. Because even in the midst of such grand displays of providence, all the ways that God blesses us, we still complain rather than praise. We need a savior. We need a redeemer. Someone who can praise in our place. And that is exactly what Christ did. So let's go to this fourth frame, praise. Abraham's servant recognizes that all of this is from the sovereign Lord. Verses 26 to 27. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, 
The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. In all of this, the servant recognizes God's character and his providential hand. He has demonstrated steadfast love and faithfulness. And another way to conceive of this is that that is to say that he has related, God has related kindly and loyally and reliably with Abraham. All of that is one of the one of the most distinguishing words to describe God in all of the Bible, in all of the Hebrew Bible, hesed, and it means steadfast love, sometimes translated kindness, sometimes loyal love, unending love, faithfulness even sometimes. God has dealt with him in this way. Recently, at our men's retreat, I did uh, our talk on Psalm 1. And I've been reading a book lately on uh, biblical meditation in the Puritans. It's a great little book, God's Battle Plan for the Mind. I'm going to try to put it in the hand of as many people as I can. But it's on the practice of biblical meditation as taught by the 17th century English Puritans. And it's interesting in that book that the Puritans describe a kind of meditation called occasional meditation. I'm not talking about the crazy Eastern ideas of meditation where you empty yourself. I'm talking about where you fill yourself with the word of the living God. I'm talking about that kind of meditation. And so it's interesting that they describe it uh, that there's deliberate meditation where you sit with the text of Scripture and you meditate on the word of God. There's also occasional meditation where you are moving through your day working And as you're working, everything is seen through the lens of God. Everything is seen through the lens of praise. And so you're referring everything you encounter, the bug, the tree, the coworker, everything being referred back to God. That is the kind of life that will yield praise of God's providence. Because everywhere we see, everywhere we look, we will see his hand. There are So many opportunities, so much of his character displayed to form a basis for our continual meditation. As Psalm 1 says, day and night. So the fifth frame now is proclamation. We just looked at praise. Now we come to proclamation. Rebecca hurries to her family and her brother Laban runs out to meet the man and welcome him to their home. And as they put food before this faithful servant, it's interesting what he says in verse 33. I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. In other words, this servant has a burden to carry out the mission his master has sent him on. He must share his message, and in doing so, he will proclaim the character of the God of Abraham. It's interesting here, many commentators point out that this servant is one of the best illustrations of a servant in the all of the Bible. Now, it's not so much, a, you know, we don't want to get moralistic, really, in the sense of, okay, what's the, what's the message of this story? We, we need to be like this servant. No, that's not, that's not what's going on here. But I think we do get in this servant a very nice illustration of this thing that we are called in the New Testament. All of the apostles understood themselves to be bondservants, slaves and servants of Christ. And all of us are called to be servants of Christ. What does that look like? What does it look like to be a servant of our master? One of the best pictures that we get, really, in all of the Bible is right here in Genesis 24. This is a single-minded man. All he wants to do is faithfully carry out his mission on behalf of his master, Abraham, pointing us to the Christian life 
as we carry out the bidding of our Christ. So the servant tells the family about Abraham and Isaac and all that has transpired on this mission. God has blessed Abraham and all of this has been passed on to the son of his old age. Abraham sent him on this mission and God has been with him. Verse 48, God had led him on the right way to take the daughter of his master's kinsman for his son. And so he ends in verse 49 by asking, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right or to the left. And this leads to our final frame, quite a long story, but our final frame is prosperity. God does, in fact, prosper this servant on his mission. God providentially settles the matter, sends the servant off with the future wife. And we see this success come to a close in a few ways. First of all, the family has nothing to say. I mean, God has demonstrated his providence, and God has given the servant the words to speak to show his providence. And what is the response of the family? Well, the thing has come from the Lord. What can we say? What else can we say? God has done this. Even if their motives are twisted, and even if their hearts are not as faithful as the servants, they recognize that to, to go against this is to go against the very hand of God. And then God providentially works to overcome their delay, bringing Rebecca forward to state her desire. Verse 58, I will go. God overcomes even that. And in this beautiful moment where Rebecca gets center stage, she comes before her family. Will you go with the man, Rebecca? And she says, I will go. It's interesting here that Rebecca is like a miniature Abraham. Remember that God came to Abraham and he called him from his kindred, from everything he knew, from his family, and said, I want you to go. And what did Abraham do? He picked up and he left. This is the life of faith, to pick up, trust God, and follow him. And this is exactly what we have with Rebecca. She says, I will go. This is God's doing. I will trust him. I will go. Then in verse 61, we see clearly that God has indeed prospered the servant on his way. It says there, verse 61, then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. The Lord, the God of heaven, has accomplished his purposes. And I want to just make a point here about the Lord's sovereignty. Do you notice this? God is not just sovereign outside of us. Okay, let me make that point very clear. God is not just sovereign in the workings of the world. God is sovereign over hearts. God is sovereign over history. And God is sovereign over hearts. This could have gone many different ways. The servant's heart could have been twisted. Laban and Bethuel and the mother, their hearts could have been twisted. Rebecca's heart could have been twisted. But it is because of the sovereign Lord of history and of human hearts that they are not. God is in control. Seeing God's sovereignty is not a matter of isolated verses in certain books of the Bible. It's all throughout the scriptures. God's sovereignty is painted on every page of the Bible. If we'll just pick it up and read it, 
You don't just have to read Ephesians 1 or Romans 8 and 9 or John 6 and so on and so forth. God's sovereignty over hearts, over wills, is all throughout the Bible. Here we see it once again. Finally, as we finish up, the husband's delight. Verses 62 to 67. You know, it's, it's a sweet, sweet little passage here. In the midst of this arranged marriage, which is very foreign to us, very foreign to us in our very individualistic modern society, this is so odd. And by the way, it's interesting, I'll just say this briefly as a side note. John Calvin makes a really good point about this passage in, in, in saying, I'm just going to throw this out there, it made me think, in saying that it is right for grown adult children to have a concern over what their parents think about their future spouse. You know, in our culture today, we actually have no regard for that. We think, and I'm going to marry who I'm going to marry. I don't care what mom and dad have to say. I mean, I'm a grown person. I'm a grown man or I'm a grown woman. I will do as I please. But I think what we see here is that uh, in the biblical understanding of what the relationship between parents and children, there's a kind of honoring that goes on there such that it's not that the wishes of the parents have the final say, but it is that they matter. And I think we are to at least understand that as we come to this text, which means a 17, 18, 19, 22-year-old whose parents say, don't marry him, don't marry her, should wake up and pray before the Lord and say, God, the most important people in my life are saying, hold up. Maybe I should hold up and wait or stop or turn away. But it's interesting that in the midst of this arranged marriage, what we have here is a bit of romantic love. It's a beautiful picture. Isaac is out in the field meditating, maybe praying or still sadly contemplating the death of his mother. And what happens? Abraham's servant with his entourage appears in the distance. Behold the camels. He's just out there kind of kicking the dust. He's praying probably and thinking this is a, this word, this, the word for meditate here occurs only in this spot in the Hebrew Bible. So it's not really clear what exactly it means. It could be wondering. It could mean a, a kind of mourning. It could mean a prayerful meditation. But he's out there alone thinking. You can only imagine what he's thinking. And all of a sudden, here comes this entourage of people with the servant. Rebecca sees the man. And when she finds out that it is her future husband, she modestly covers her face, which is also a way of showing her pledge to marry Isaac. So it's a way of, it's a way of, of kind of a badge of her being betrothed to him, if you will. But it's also a modesty. The servant relays to Isaac all that has taken place. Can you imagine? I mean, this is Isaac, the one who got brought up onto the hill to be, to be sacrificed by his father. Isaac has seen the power of the Lord. He knows the God of his father. In fact, he is called in the Bible, the Lord is called the fear of Isaac. He's called that later on in Genesis, the fear of Isaac. Isaac knows the Lord. And here, the servant, probably with such exuberance, explains to him what has happened. You won't believe it. I was at the well, and she walked up, and she did exactly what I prayed. And then I went to the house, and they were going to delay. But then she came forward, and she said, I will go. It was incredible. It was beautiful. Here she is. Here she is. And the story ends 
on a note of personal delight and matriarchal replacement. Verse 67, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isaac loves Rebekah, and she provides well-needed comfort over the death of his mother. But even more importantly, and this is where we're going to end this morning, even more importantly, Rebekah replaces Sarah as the matriarch of the line. God's dealings that we've been reading about, we've been down in the weeds with these people. God's dealings with Abraham and Sarah now shifts to Isaac and Rebekah. Times and seasons will pass away. People will come and go. You have come and will go. But the purposes of the everlasting God continue. God will provide the Satan crusher, the lamb, the king. God will bless all the nations of the earth through him. God will restore Eden. And he chose to do this through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he chooses to manifest this great, glorious, gracious story in each of our lives every single day until our life passes away. Will we be committed to his purposes? Will we trust in his steadfast love and faithfulness? Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by your word and what it teaches us about you and about our lives, about the story of salvation, about the history of your people. Father, we are amazed at your providence and to think that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that you, the God who brought Rebecca right at that time to that well, you are doing all kinds of things like that, Father, in our lives today. We praise you, Lord. We've seen it. If we stopped right now and got in a big circle and went around and everyone was bold enough to speak, we would hear endless accounts of your providence. We praise you, God. You are a good father. You take care of us. You never leave us and you will never forsake us. And in the hour of our death, you will usher us into your presence. May we trust in you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name, amen.